0: Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. I feel like I'm supposed to say something right now. What was it? Oh, yeah. What's up, team? Registration for the 2021 Spring ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is open. In these life-changing groups, you will work with me and your fellow group members via Zoom to talk about all of the parenting challenges brought about by ADHD and COVID-19. And you'll learn effective ways to manage them. The groups run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays, beginning on Monday, April 19th, and wrapping up Wednesday, June 19th. One section is at 1 p.m. Eastern, and the other is at 5 p.m. Eastern. Each of the eight weeks has its own theme, which build upon one another as we go. Week 1 is practicing self-care. Week 2 is parenting as leadership. Week 3, fostering connection within and without of the family. Week 4, improving communication. Week 5, creating ADHD-friendly systems and structures. Week 6, managing anxiety. Week 7 is all about understanding my wall of awful model. And Week 8 is about asking better questions so we can get better answers. The groups are split roughly equally between connection and content, so you'll spend about a half an hour connecting with your fellow group members, getting to know one another, and getting support from each other, and the other 30 minutes will be spent with direct instruction around each of the themes that I mentioned previously. Go to ADHDessentials.com parentgroups or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com to register for a free information call today. The groups are already filling up. And those links will be in the show notes. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, and ADHD Diversified with MJ. And of course, if you haven't already, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It helps others find us and really supports the podcast. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Paulo, a dad with ADHD and dyslexia, who basically grew up in a modern-day Mark Twain novel. In this episode, Paolo shares his experiences growing up with ADHD. He tells stories of being raised by hippies, living an unfettered childhood, getting kicked out of every school he attended. He discusses his love of history, frustration with English, how his past challenges have affected him when it comes to witnessing the struggles of his own child, and backtracking through his wandering thoughts. All right, let's get rolling.
1: Hi, I'm Paulo. I'm a woodworker and artist. I've decided to harness the uh, ADHD to uh, its best part, which is the creative. And so my work kind of focuses on that. I tend to go wherever the ideas go. So I'm very much a nonlinear woodworker, which kind of runs against the grain. What do you mean by a nonlinear woodworker? What does that look like? You know, measure twice, cut once, whereas 80D, uh, you cut five times and then jam it together. <laughs> and so uh, I actually w- do a lot of work where I'm taking lots of small pieces and re-gluing them and then recutting them and re-gluing them to create uh, really interesting pieces. Oh, cool. And are you making art, furniture? I work with a tiny house uh, community. So I do a lot of tiny house stuff and workshops with a friend of mine. Then I also do art, but everything I do has to have a function. I don't like art just for art's sake. It has to be applicable to real life. So I'll build a trellis, but I might want to make the trellis bent and curved and follow unusual lines. And we've talked previously about sort of your struggles
0: growing up as a kid with ADHD. How does that play out in your art?
1: Are those two things connected at all? Definitely, um, the best part about it is the way in which I can go into the shop with an idea and 12 hours will disappear. I won't use the bathroom, I won't drink anything. I get into that ADD hyper focus and get amazing stuff done. The downside is managing the projects and the time and uh, where I put my energies. And that's still even as an adult comes up all the time. More of the executive function around that. And what was it like for you growing up as a kid? I luckily grew up with hippies. So I was a little more unfettered and I didn't have people breathing down my neck. But in any school system, it didn't matter where I went. I ended up getting kicked out because I basically couldn't hold back thoughts as a kid. So uh, somebody would ask me a question, I'd give an answer and not realize the maybe that's not the answer they wanted. And now they're upset. Or I was very interested in something and I couldn't keep myself from speaking out. So I was very disruptive, not in a malicious way, just as a kid because of that control. So are you, when, you, when people are asking you questions, is it like
0: classroom questions of like who won the war of 1812 and you're saying stuff that's not connected to that? Or is it like more confrontational? What are you doing in the hallway kind of stuff?
1: So with remembering stuff like that, you might not get the date. I might not even get the names, but I could tell you every detail about the battle and all the characters and all those things. It was the ideas that were interesting. Whereas the facts and or the dates and names just would go in one ear and out the other. So you're rattling off about like details from the war of 1812
0: and sort of the big concept stuff and the teachers getting frustrated with you because they just wanted a simple
1: answer. I had a deal with my history teacher in high school that if I sat at the back of the class and read my own books and didn't interject, I would get an A and it was because I had read the books and the school books were wrong and I knew they were wrong and I couldn't help being disruptive because I was bringing up what was wrong. So we just, hit this middle ground where she just asked me not to say anything.
0: So a situation where um, my kid kind of runs into this scenario, both of my kids actually run into this challenge sometimes where, especially in history, history is a really good example of this where they kind of have to simplify stuff for you until like really college. it, It gets simplified until college, but in high school, some classes can start to go into the more complex, nuanced, there are no good guys element of history, but in elementary school and middle school, especially it's as much propaganda as it is history, at least when you're talking about American history.
1: Exactly. So like I grew up with hippies, so uh, I was kind of taught to question everything. So even reading history as a kid, I'm reading different versions of history. And so when I run up against the textbooks in grade school and high school, I actually know that they're wrong. I mean, just taking like Howard Zinn's book as a perfect example if you read his and then you look at what happened with the labor movement in the United States you have a completely different view of what you would be taught in high school i think it's changed quite a bit nowadays but at least when i was a kid yeah and
0: as a guy who taught social studies and history and and has watched that curriculum develop it had there have been a lot of changes it is a much different curriculum than it was when you and i were growing up so It's more along the lines of what you were being taught, I would suspect.
1: Well, and I came up uh, through California, which, you know, you consider this liberal place. But uh, when I was a TA in California, I still had to sign the Loyalty Act to be a teacher. So uh, California still requires you to uh, defend the country against all uh, enemies, foreign and domestic. It's it's leftover and it's still in the California system, or at least it was when I was there. But going back that kind of process in the schools, I got into a lot of trouble and was ended up kicked out of kindergarten because I wouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag. Because I knew as a kid that those rules were different and that a flag company had pushed the pledge of allegiance and all that kind of stuff. You could say I was brainwashed in another way of thinking, but it was just a different way of Mm thinking. Thinking And so I ran up against that constantly in school systems.
0: It sounds like you're getting kicked out of these schools for political reasons as much as ADHD reasons. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah, but I think, I think they're kind of connected because uh, in a way, if you have ADD, you kind of, because you're always falling through the cracks in certain ways, you're very aware of the cracks socially and uh, you tend to focus on them. And I think that happens with politics and also with history. I find that talking to other people with ADD, their choices of reading history is very different from what I would say a lot of people would read. In what way? You tend towards, like I was saying, whether you want to call it a crack or the tales that aren't normally told. Because they're more interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. This is not at all how
0: I thought this conversation was going to go. We're heading in some, <laughs> some interesting areas.
1: Well, like, uh, do you ever listen to Hardcore History with Dan Carlin? Yeah. Yeah. So he does a great job of going down that kind of rabbit hole of history, like he talks about World War I, how it started. the Just the insane amount of weird coincidences that led us into World War I that's why it's such a fascinating wonderful thing speaking of rabbit holes
0: Dan Carlin's hardcore history those episodes are like six hours long that podcast is a beast and he yeah and he has multiple right and and the world War one history I think he has like four or five of them and they're each of them is like six hours long it's a lot of
1: content it's amazing my daughter was really into listening to his stuff even when she was little but then she backed off when they did the stuff about the Americans in the Philippines. It was just too violent. So you're getting kicked out of kindergarten because you're not pledging allegiance.
0: How many schools did you get kicked out of?
1: I got kicked out of every school I went to until they found out I had ADD and kicked me out of high school. And the problem was that when I went, well, they finally, because I wasn't showing up to class, I was getting D's and F's. The only class I got an A and was AP biology. And I only got in because the teacher made an exemption uh, for me, exception for me. And basically when they did the tests, they realized that I had pretty bad dyslexia and very severe ADHD, or as they were saying at that time, ADD. Uh, and as a kid, I was even more hyperactive. You know, in my teens, it kind of mellowed out a bit. And is this in the eighties, nineties, when, Eighty-two, eighty-four. Okay, And so, but I scored so high on the intelligence test that they said I was being lazy okay. and they kicked me out. And I went to, I guess it was like not even half a semester of their bad boy continuation school. Didn't like that. And California has this wonderful law, which allows you to matriculate into college at any time, just by taking tests. And so even though I wasn't good at tests, I was good enough to get into the college. So I went there. Without having graduated from high school? Yeah. I never got a high school degree or a GED. I just went straight to college. And then uh, once I was there, I got on the dean's list because I was able to study stuff I was interested in. And what are you studying in college? At the time, I studied cooking. So I was doing that. And then I went back, left, came back, did uh, photography and computer science. Wow. Cooking, photography, and computer science. Not even close to connected to
0: each other. I mean, cooking and photography and then the woodworking, that's all kind of artistic. That stuff
1: makes sense. Computer science feels a little out of the blue. I thought computer science was going to be this amazing thing where I'd learn that the language would have, it would make complete sense. Like the English language, for me, the English language is a constant battle. I can speak it and I get joy out of reading good stuff and hearing amazing things. But the arbitrary constant rules of English make me crazy <laughs> um, just all the time. I, I really, it feels like a second language.
0: Can I put on my dorky English teacher hat? Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> Do you know why the like the
1: spelling rules for English are such a train wreck? Uh, because of... Co- uh, the different languages it used previously. Yeah.
0: Cause it may, it's made up of Anglo-Saxon, which is actually two languages, really three that are all from like kind of Germany before Germany was Germany. And then you also have French, which is like dirty Latin starts to come in. And then so too does Latin and Greek. So we have like a mishmash of six or so languages all trying to form one language. And then because English is now the trade language of the world, we steal words from other languages at will and make it makes it even
1: more complicated. Did you ever, uh, are you a science fiction fan? I am. Yeah. Did you read the David Brin uplift series? I didn't that's been on my list for a while. I haven't gotten to it. So he goes to this whole idea that uh, metaphors and the messed up language allows intuitive leaps that, when we eventually run into races or from the stars, other alien races, they're completely blown away by us uh, because the whole principle of off lipped is no one's ever lifted up by themselves. Another race always lifts them up. And so they find the humans that have gone into space on their own. And his main thesis of all four books is it's basically the creativity of language that makes us such creative thinkers to jump forward constantly. I can see I, that's an idea to play with. I mean, he has a whole book where it's all really, the underlying is all about language. Oh, so computer science, uh, I thought it was going to be linear, straightforward. And then I realized it, was, it wasn't even hieroglyphs because a thing didn't represent another thing. It was just an arbitrary language. So I walked away from that pretty fast. I went through DOS and did okay, but hated it. And I wasn't going to go into C++ and, you know, go farther. You mentioned that you
0: got kicked out of every school that you went to. How many schools is that? Two, three, 100?
1: Uh, Okay. So kindergarten, I remember that just because it was a big deal. And my, I mean, one thing I have to say is my mom showed up and chewed him out. So that was very nice to see. Like he's following the rules. You're making a big deal about this. And then every other school, I maybe would get through a year, but by the second year, it would be either too much or they, sometimes it was gentle. They would just ask me to leave. And also I did, my mom moved a lot. So I did end up moving around areas. So it was kind of the combination. So you have a pretty disrupted education between moving
0: and being kicked out. And we've had conversations in the past that you kind of don't trust teachers and, edu- and the education system all that much because you've had this
1: disrupted education. Am I un- understanding that correctly? Uh, I don't trust school systems. I don't have a problem with teachers. I had problems with teachers, but I also had amazing teachers. Okay. I had a teacher in middle school or pre-middle school who was the only person who stood up for me. She eventually became principal of the district, but I called her, I would say 25 years later, looked her up and just to tell her how wonderful and what she did. And I had one in high school that stood up for me. So it's not the teachers. I mean, I think there are issues with teachers, of course, like with any job, but I find that the way school systems work, it's, you know, everybody goes into the square hole. Everybody is a square peg. And no matter what systems they put in to help, it always kind of falls apart because I don't think they're looking at it in a holistic way in the larger picture. How did your parents navigate all of this disruption for you? Uh, I got a lot of, you know, you can do anything, you can be anybody. And that was about it. So it was all on myself. I had great periods like at nine, I think we were living out uh, peninsula in Northern California. And I remember an entire summer where I didn't go home once, and my friend Arjuna didn't go home, and we would both just camp out and get food from each other's house, but never stay home. So as a kid, I was able to play in the woods all summer long, and those are things you don't get anymore. As a kid, I remember going up every summer to live in the Sierras for the summertime. So we would go up and just pick a campsite up in the National Forest and run around swim in the rivers, uh, catch animals, just hang out. You're not kidding about unfettered. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The one town I lived, I met an English sailor who had lost his way and basically was building a boat on the side of the coast to sail back to England. And I would go down every uh, day, bring him food and hear stories about his trips in the Merchant Marines. So I like grew up on a coastal town and meet weird, crazy characters like out of a, almost like a Mark Twain novel.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a Jimmy Buffett song waiting to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, so I love that part of it. But then every time I went to school, it was the stress of the social aspect of, you know, having a big mouth and not being able to keep it shut, not being able to concentrate, not being able to follow tests or follow what they were doing and being bored all the time. And there's also, I imagine,
0: like a level of expectation being put on you that you're not trained for, I guess. I mean, if you're just out and about all summer long and talking to random English sailors who are building boats and camping out for the whole summer with your friend, and then you go into school and they're like, sit down, sit still, don't ask questions, just regurgitate the stuff we're telling you to regurgitate. I can see how that would be a challenging cultural shift.
1: It definitely was. And then even when uh, you know, we moved to more of a city in the Bay Area and I was going to school, a great example is grade school. I was having trouble, couldn't uh, focus in the class. And they pulled me out and put me in the remedial class. And at that time, we got a babysitter down the street who was, uh, he wasn't, so he was an older high school student. He was about to go into college. He ended up at locally, but he was into role-playing games. And we had grown up, our mom reading us all these books, but I had dyslexia and I had horrible time reading. And so I would basically just have to slog through it. He shows up on the scene and teaches me and my brother how to play role-playing games. That way when he's babysitting us, because my parents would leave for two days and the babysitter would watch us. So it wasn't just like, you know, for part of a night. And he taught both of us how to play role playing games and other board games and got me so involved that I went from the remedial class uh, with English to them testing me later that semester, you know, part of the year. And I was clocking in at college level reading. And it all happened in a like six month period. Wow, and it was just about focus. It was something that I wanted so bad. I was going to do anything to get there. And I still read everything twice as a kind of scan through habit. But you know, by high school, I had teachers in my yearbook write put down a book once in a while because I would walk around <laughs> reading books as I was walking through uh, town uh, because I was so focused on what I was reading. Wow, with dyslexia, that's a big. That's a big jump. Actually, so now audiobooks are such a great thing. But even with dyslexia, I couldn't get certain books. But I did find, uh, when I went to the deaf and blind school, I found audiobooks back then that weren't in the regular library. This is in the old days when you would get, let's say it's War and Peace, and it weighs like 10 pounds, and it's this big box of tapes. And you put a tape in, and you flip the channel, from stereo to the left side. And that's your first track. You play through and then you flip the tape and you play through. Then you flip the tape back and you put it on the right side. Wow. To speaker B. And so each tape had four on them. They would lay the tracks over and that's how they would stick these big books. And I would also listen to shortwave radio so I could listen to books from England. And even Russia had their propaganda thing. So I would <laughs> listen to, uh, I think it was Radio Free Moscow or, no, that's the American one. I forget what the Russian one was. Shortwave radio, I can listen to stuff all over the world, pre-internet. So I have to ask, did you end up in the deaf and blind school because you were looking
0: for audiobooks or because you'd been kicked out of every other school and that was where you landed?
1: Uh, I figured out that that's where I could find audiobooks. And uh, I because I just loved listening to stories, even if I wasn't reading it, So I went in and told them that I have uh, dyslexia. Well, actually, I didn't know I had dyslexia at the time. I just said I had trouble reading. And they gave me a card and let me check them out. You've had this disrupted, disruptive childhood. And the way you and I are connected
0: is you're in my parent coaching groups. So how has your
1: childhood informed your parenting? That's a tough one because uh, as a parent, I would think that I would be better about Uh, Seeing the issues with ADD that I have myself and then reflecting on uh, my child. But the biggest issue was when you haven't dealt with your own issues, it's very hard to deal with the issues that come up with your kids. So if you still have anger or you have frustration or angst about everything you went through, then you see your kids start to go through it. That just kind of can throw you a bit. And uh, you can fall back in bad habits. So we've been doing this group and the thing that's been helping with it is not only me reevaluating my thought process, but also as a couple, my wife does not have ADD. And so it's been really good for us in communication, just as another person outside to see those patterns.
0: Oh, cool. Thank you. I'm glad that I'm glad the groups are helping you that way.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, you live in your own bubble, uh, with this. And a lot of times I find that everybody in the world either dismisses it like out of hand or casually says they have it, even though they've never been tested as it's kind of like this joke. (laughs) So it's very good to be in a situation where you're having somebody who's going through like the fundamentals uh, and the structure of it with your spouse. I had a pretty similar experience with my wife where
0: we went to a workshop that this guy, David Nowell put on, he's been on the show a couple of times. It's probably the best thing I did for my marriage (laughs) for real, because my wife got to see me through the lens of a professional psychiatrist or psychologist who was talking about what ADHD is and how it works and why people with ADHD do the things that they do and all that stuff. And, and also at the time I was secure enough in my ADHD stuff that I was able to raise my hand and be like and this as the probably only person in this room was ADHD this is the lens that might be helpful for all of you other folks but it was it was a pretty good good experience maritally cuz it helped her get me a little bit better it sounds like you're having the same experience with my groups
1: definitely it's tricky with the language there's so many ways in which you can approach this but you don't operate in the way that other people operate. And so it creates these kind of pathways or problems in society that you run up against. And it's it's hard on our uh, significant others to deal with that all the time, let alone yourself. And so just even having somebody else who's dealt with it talk about it is nice. You know, the old card catalogs, when you want to go to the library and look something up, uh, for me, ADD, ADHD is kind of this card catalog. I have all the information. It's in there. It's stored, but the cabinet is locked. And no matter how I uh, try to get in through the front, I can't. So I have to break out the back and randomly grab whatever I can find. And it's a process of winnowing it down. That's where I think some of the creative thinking comes from, but it's also the kind of madness of uh, dealing with day-to-day stuff. How
0: has your your own experience with ADHD affected sort of watching your daughter struggle? Cause you mentioned that you see, you see kind of your own struggles reflected in your kid. How does that play out for you?
1: It's a it's a tough one in the sense that you, uh, everybody thinks that their experience is the only experience. And so you think that your ADHD is reflected in somebody else when it's not the case. I felt like I could see the patterns going beforehand, especially the executive function stuff. But the stuff that I learned to motivate myself, they're actually adversarial with uh, my child. And so I have to learn that maybe my tools aren't the appropriate tools. And that's kind of stepping back and just allowing, giving support and allowing them to figure it out themselves. It's tough as a parent because you want to do the best you can. And, you know, your experience is the one that you think might be the best. Right. Which is sort of what your parents did. Yeah, my parents definitely didn't, but I could have definitely used some more focus (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or a little bit more uh, help in general. Now, what were
0: they doing? You mentioned that they would leave for like two days at a time. Was that like a business job
1: thing or? Yeah, it was a business job and teaching thing. There's a flip of it is in high school when I did get diagnosed, then uh, I went to see somebody and the person wanted to put me on Ritalin at the time. And the other part of my situation was that I had, I would almost call them like a manic behavior, uh, which is I had very big ups and very low downs. And I would go through pretty big extremes. Sometimes they were in a day and sometimes they could be months. And later in years, I had friends who would hang out for, with me to go on those rides when I started to go up because they knew it was going to be fun. But when I had the opportunity to take it when I was younger, I didn't because I, didn't, I felt like it was going to take away my highs and my lows. And what I did realize when I finally took it at 25, that it was completely different than what I expected. In what way? So when I first did it, I was 25. I was working as a waiter. I paid out of pocket, because I didn't have healthcare, uh, to see somebody about it. And I decided I wanted to try these medicines for the first time. And so she prescribed Ritalin. And I I remember the first time I took it, I was walking down the street and I literally felt the calmest I'd ever felt in my life when it kicked in. It was just like this giant weight came off my shoulder. I could look around and I wasn't frenetic and I was very peaceful. And this was Ritalin. So for most people, it'd make them nervous or jangy or you know whatnot. It's a, a stimulant. And for me, it, it was the most relaxing thing at that point I had gone through. I unfortunately have this other thing where I metabolize drugs after a certain period. So the effects wear off of any kind of medicine I take. It doesn't matter what it is. So I started to go higher and higher, and then I had to stop. And then I tried other stuff. Over the years, I went through the whole schedule of it. And right now, I think the thing, thing that I seem to work best with is either not doing it or doing it for shorter periods. Does that slow down your... Tolerance, Yeah, it does. Uh, It breaks it up a little bit. But the other thing is what I learned from the year that I was on Ritalin at 25 went through uh, the rest of my life, which was just opening those pathways in the brain had a profound effect in the sense that I realized what I could be like when I wasn't flying all over the place in my head. It allowed me to kind of do things that reprogram my head Outside of the medicine, that was really, really useful. It, it just basically set the pathways.
0: So you sort of could see the trail through the woods to get to where you needed to be.
1: What are the strategies that you're using instead of medication? So I had a wonderful and crazy thing happen in high school where I was in class and I started to zone out because the teacher was completely boring and I already knew what they were talking about. And 45 minutes went by class ends. And I had no idea how I got to the subject I was thinking about. And then I was thinking to myself, where did my 45 minutes go? It took me all day, but I backtracked my ideas. I just sat there working my way back to the original idea that sent me off on this mental ghost chase. And I was so amazed that I decided that I was going to make a habit of always backtracking my wanderings. Um, So I was aware of what I was doing. And it was just a little mental exercise and it worked great in the sense of if I don't put my keys somewhere where they should be and I can't find them, I can backtrack my process. So now I use it for everything. Uh, It's kind of a version of very slow time travel. That's impressive mindfulness as well, right? You really have to be mindful of what
0: you're doing in order to do that process. So I imagine it kind of helps you be in the moment a
1: little more effectively Intentionally or unintentionally? Well, so I can remember conversations I had with people 20 years ago. I can remember those kind of things. So I think it helps with the wandering mind because these are images I'm seeing in my head. You know, whenever your mind wanders, I can go through the back to that process. And also, when I dream, I almost always remember everything. I'm a lucid dreamer. So the nice thing is, I can also, when I'm sleeping, be aware that I'm dreaming and kind of play around with that. But it's the same process, except it did get me in trouble with uh, meditation because I thought, "Oh, you've got ADD, ADHD. You're going to be all over the place. You're not going to be able to focus." And I found uh, it was a little too much. The opposite. I was able to hyperfocus to the point where I probably should have been cutting back on it. Uh, just you know, in the way that I was doing it. So just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Be kind to yourself. With this issue, you run up against stuff constantly. There's always barriers, whether you set them or society sets them. It's a constant battle. And it's really easy to be rough with yourself and very hard to be forgiving.
0: Hey, you're still here nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.